And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever the case may be, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Um, We're going to be leading tonight with a story related to COVID-19, because that's going to be part of a very intriguing and extraordinary conversation I'm going to have with our guest later in the morning. Uh, Richard Grossinger has what I would perceivably call a transcendental view of the COVID pandemic and the planet and the world and past and future and where are we and who are we. In other words, it's going to be, it's it's not going to be what you've ever heard before on this subject, I guarantee you, which is why we have actually published in his uh, section of Radio with Pictures an essay he did, a kind of a loose journal of thoughts and observations and analyses that was in real time posted on Facebook um, uh, a little over a year ago. And uh, it is so good that we put it on the other side of midnight tonight because I, I, it's long. I must warn you, it's very long, but it has some really interesting ideas, some of which I embrace, some of which I will question, and some of which I find, well, you'll hear. Anyway, um, before we get to Richard, let me do some news items. Number one, apropos of what I was just saying, as you may have noticed if you're watching or perusing or following mainstream culture and news, the modality of how did this virus come about has shifted. The pendulum has swung. Now there is a very strong groundswell for the idea ultimately that this thing leaked out of the lab there in Wuhan. And of course, Chinese vigorously claim that's all nonsense and uh, the subject has been intensely politicized over the last year. Uh, You know that uh, Dr. Wickrama Singh and I have a very different model. We think it came from outer space. And uh, Chandra thinks it came naturally as part of an extraordinary panoply of experiments and observations he has done with colleagues like um, Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle, going back into the 50s and the discovery in their observations that life itself is permeating the interstellar clouds of this galaxy. And now, of course, we can observe interstellar clouds in millions of other galaxies. And the signature, which uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh found many, many decades ago, is there in the interstellar medium. It was found by a, an astronomer at Lick back in the 30s called Trumpler, a name that uh, has not been mentioned in astronomy circles for some time. Anyway, um, if you want to kind of follow that conversation, there are several shows that I've done with Chandra. Just look in the Club 19.5 archive. That's your advantage as members. And you might want to replay those again because they're – You know, it's not one of those either or things. Both could be true. This thing could have come from space. Uh, There's a robust body of data that there are periodic episodes of infection and pandemics on the planet, and they are correlated in the Hoyle-Wickrama-Singh model with when we transit interplanetary clouds of dust from comets. And uh, Chandra is of the opinion that I am, that there is current burgeoning life bustling inside comets, that they're not, you know, ancient 
blocks of ice permeated by little specks of silicates. They're much, 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 much more interesting. And they have draped the solar system, particularly the inner solar system, in a fluvia that contains microbes, that contains living things, DNA, et cetera, et cetera, and, drumroll, viruses. So it's very possible in a very squeaky clean mainstream model, even if the mainstream hasn't accepted it yet. Uh, in fact, it, it's looking more and more like this model has been suppressed as so many interesting scientific discoveries have been ruthlessly suppressed over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, if and when this is appreciated, an outer space origin for COVID-19 is certainly, should certainly be on the boards for investigation. It's not there yet. We've moved from, it came from a bat through an intermediary animal to that market in Wuhan, the so-called wet market, what a name. Two, it may have leaked out of the lab in Wuhan um, because they were experimenting with uh, doing things to these viruses. They're found, I, I guess this particular strain is found in bats and only in bats. Um, they were doing what is called gain of function. Gosh, all the new terms we're learning. Gain of function means you take something natural into a laboratory and you work to turn it into a weapon. You want to make it more virulent. You want to make it more dangerous. You want to make it more lethal. You want to make it more. So you want to gain on the function of its natural proclivities in the wild. And, of course, like the old haystack joke, there are two ways of looking at that. One is if there are bad guys on the planet and they're going to be doing this anyway, we need to be doing this, meaning the U.S., meaning the U.S. government, in order to figure out how to stop what they're doing when they do it. Follow that? That's the benign theory. The less benign theory is that like all other nations, we are and have been actively conducting uh, bio-warfare research, which even though the treaties are in place and we're supposed to have destroyed our stockpiles, etc., this research is going on sub rosa, regardless, because not everybody is a you know, a player that operates via the Geneva Convention. So in the case that they use bioweapons, we will have bioweapons. It's kind of a biomad, you know, equivalency to the nuclear, you know, mutual assured destruction, the mad doctrine, which has um, prevailed since the end of World War II. All of that aside, What's interesting is that there are more serious people, both scientists, political people, journalists, the general public, who are looking seriously at the it escaped from Wuhan model. Then, of course, you get to the finer level where were the Chinese developing this as a bioweapon or were they the recipients of funds from the U.S. government by way of kind of outsourcing this research which technically is restricted and prohibited by the treaty on U.S. soil. But if you just send money and someone else does, in other words, I'm not aware, and we we'll, may find out during the morning, <clears throat> whether the Chinese were ever signers of the um, uh, you know, treaty against uh, biological warfare. I do not know. And it would be an interesting loophole if they were not given that they did not have the technological capabilities 
when the treaty was constructed to be part of a biowarfare strategic plan. It would be interesting to see if this money that was sent from the U.S. government to China to do gain of function on these viruses, coronaviruses, if in fact it was to escape the letter of the law. If that's true, one should, in a fair and just universe, expect heads should roll and people should be fired and maybe even brought up on on some kind of war crimes. Because if you abrogate an international treaty by trying to secretly circumvent it, there should be consequences. Anyway, we're still we're going to talk about COVID-19 tonight in part from a very, very, very interesting set of different perspectives. I guarantee you different than you have ever heard on either of the shows that we put on the air before. Which brings me to item number two. Now, this is something that my guest tonight has no clue about because it has not been widely talked about in the media. In fact, it hasn't been talked about at all. It is the subject of our own publication here, as well as a paper co-authored by three scientists um, out of the University of Chicago, two of whom are off off uh, uh, off the coast, you know, uh, one in Israel and I think one in England. And it has not been widely picked up by the uh, academic community. In fact, it kind of sank into a academic black hole, which I find interesting. And this is what it is. It's it's item number two. It's it's that graph, which by the way truncates at November seventh of twenty twenty, because that's when the folks publishing these graphs. Obviously, because we talked about it a lot on this show, uh, got wind of the fact that, oh, my God, they were releasing too much data. So you cannot find a daily, any country or the world, anywhere on the web that I have looked. And if someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that, I will be very gleeful because I'd like to see how this trend extended from March 11th, which is when you know, the World Health Organization declared the pandemic to um, where our data ends November 7th of 2020. Actually, of course, the pandemic is still going on. So there should be records somewhere compiled as this graph was from the European equivalent of the CDC. I I politically, yeah, I politically and deliberately eschewed our own CDC because of the political tampering with it in those months. So we went to the Europeans, and what they would do is they would collate data from all over the world, something like 195 countries submitting daily statistics as to the number of people dying and the number of people dying from COVID-19. And what I have said many times before, given that there has been the accusation that all these numbers have been cooked and an awful lot of people dying of, quote, ordinary causes were billed to COVID-19 really because they were billed to COVID-19. Well, that only applies in the U.S. It doesn't apply around the rest of the world. There were no bonuses offered for people dying of COVID versus anything else and no supplementals and no uh, none, none of the stuff that went on here. Um, so that data should be cleaner. It should be purer. What was extraordinary, oh, someone's saying to me, not true. Well, see, if you think the whole system is rigged, then you need to get into another system because there's no way to ever figure it out. And I have the mindset that with science, you can figure anything out, but you have to have a process. Anyway, that graph you see up there is a compilation through the European CDC 
of worldwide deaths from March of 2020 through November of 2020, November 7th. And the stunning factor, the factor that to me is mind-boggling and is the most important legacy, bar all others, of COVID-19, that worldwide, in synchronization, every seven days, regardless of culture, religion, political system, timekeeping system, calendrical system, whatever, the number of deaths rose and fell in a rhythmic period of exactly seven days. Seven plus seven plus seven plus seven plus seven relentlessly. And then, of course, they cut off the grass because somebody does not want us to know that worldwide deaths attributed to COVID-19 have been you know, accumulating and be modulating on this seven-day frequency. Now, just for the sake of argument, let's just imagine that the kind of, of, of corruption and level of dissembling and dissemination of false truths and all that is of the magnitude that people who think this whole thing is a scandemic anyway uh, have been saying. Let's just for a moment for the argument say that's true. Why, if you're commingling deaths from everything else with the COVID-19 deaths, do you still come out with the seven-day frequency? Seven and seven and seven. To me, this portends an astonishing and testable scientific hypothesis that regardless of what people die of, the virus notwithstanding, it's almost irrelevant. The only reason we're measuring it is because of the politics of COVID-19. These stats should be there in the record all over the world if someone had the money to put them all together, regardless of COVID, before COVID, you know, decades before COVID, going back to when the first statistics of death were kept anywhere on Earth. If I'm right, if this is really the modulation of life and death on Earth by a seven-day, seven-spin of the planet, solar spin, not sidereal, but relative to the sun, if that seven solar day sun-centered um, modulation is correct, it modulates life and death all over the world simultaneously. And it probably, if it's that large, applies not just to human beings, but to the life and death of all creatures on earth. There should be max and minima separated by seven days relentlessly in all biomes down through history that has never been appreciated because no one had the resources until the world panicked over COVID-19 to assemble these statistics and put them all together and accessible on something called the Internet. I mean, if this is true, this is so phenomenally important. And that's why I'm really intrigued that the one academic paper that came out on this, separate from our own work, out of the University of Chicago, seems to have disappeared like tossing a stone into the Atlantic Ocean. There's been no repercussion, no discussion, no critique, no, oh, it's another conspiracy, no assailing the credentials or the backgrounds of the scientists involved, nothing. It just kind of disappeared into that vast 
cosmic sea of anonymity, which to me is really important because it means, and the, and the simultaneity of this with the cutting off of the daily death data from around the world, oh, we don't need it anymore? Yeah, right. The pandemic's still going on. Most of the world is still suffering. You know, the number of people who've been vaccinated from country to country varies radically, wildly. And it's marching on even if we here domestically are not seeing, you know, the effects. That graph, you see in number two, I think is the most stunningly important datum from the whole COVID experience. And I look forward to talking with Richard about what he thinks it might mean. Moving on to number three. Um, while all this has been going on, remember a few weeks ago, the Chinese landed on Mars. And then they disappeared. I mean, really. They landed all, about three weeks ago on Friday, Saturday their time. And then a day or two later, they rolled down the ramp and the rover touched wheels on the soil of Utopia Planitia on the planet Mars, having rolled down from the Chinese uh, lander. And the little rover is called uh, uh, Zhurong, which is the name of the Chinese fire god. Anyway, that's the last images, all, by the way, in black and white, except for one close-up of the solar panels that we got from the Chinese, and that was three weeks ago. There had been no press conferences. There's been no leaks. There's been no back-channel information. Nothing like the Chinese experience and then the rest of the world experience with the Chinese unmanned landings on the moon. Chang 3, Chang 4, and Chang 5. Chang, by the way, is the Chinese goddess of the moon. With her pet rabbit, U2, which, of course, the rover that was landed on the Chang 3 and Chang 4 missions had U2-1 and U2-2. And uh, number one fared okay for several days, and then its wheels got tangled in something, and it came to a stop. However, it still was able to transmit images, wonderful, glorious color images, which in fact demonstrated with different technology 40 years after the Apollo missions um, and a totally antithetical political system to the United States, circa NASA, circa 1969, to the 70s during the heyday of Apollo, it showed exactly the same extraordinary glass ruins extending above the horizon. And we've done past programs on this, and I won't bore you with that. Now, if you look carefully at that, at that image on item number uh, three, that's a, an official Chinese poster where before the launch, they had positioned their artwork, or actually I think it's a scale model of their lander-rover combination, on a backdrop, which is not artistic. It's actually a surface image um, from NASA, stolen from the Curiosity mission, because in the background uh, of the uh, lander, the, the Chinese lander, there is this obvious ancient eroded arcology on Mars at Gale Crater. And we've had Andrew Curry do side-by-side uh, -side comparisons. Well, that kind of tipped us off that the intention of the Chinese when they got to Mars was to basically blow the whistle on ancient Martian ruins by where they landed. 
Then they land, and they disappear. First of all, before they disappear, they keep giving us black and white images. <clears throat> they don't give us color like they did on the moon. They don't give us color panoramas like they did on the moon. They don't even give us a static shot, you know, one shot of the horizon from a lander or the rover. They give us nothing but black and white images, two or three, and then they go dark. Literally, nothing has been coming from the surface of the Chinese mission on Mars for three whole weeks. Nothing. And what I find interesting is that the patience of the um, space community, the folks that, you know, kind of haunt the blogs and the uh, various leaks and the various Twitter accounts that follow the Chinese, they're all so incredibly patient. It's like, well, they're having communication problems or, oh, maybe their rover, you know, died or in other words, everything but the real answer, which is the Chinese, for some reason, in violent contradiction to their previous behavior with the moon, where they bragged and bragged and bragged and stuffed it down our throats that they were so successful, even including the far mission to the far side, they have said and posted nothing. Now, why is that important? Well, we'll get into that when we get to Dr. Groschinger on, because I think a lot of it has to do with the real environment of Mars, the real atmosphere, the real colors of the sky, the real, you know, neighborhood. And why would they be so silent? I mean, is it possible that NASA really, you know, flummoxed the world and laid out a fake Mars to where the Chinese fell into the trap and when they finally got down and found it wasn't the way NASA's been claiming all these years at all? They have nothing to do but be silent or is their silence somehow connected to item number one the fact that the COVID-19 originated in a lab in Wuhan in other words as the Trump side has been saying China was responsible for this horrible thing all in other words is that been raised by the deep state intelligence community as a way of holding China in check regarding publishing what's really on the planet Mars. We shall see. Which grades directly into item number four in my uh, my radio with pictures section, because tonight, among other things we're going to talk about with Richard, we're going to talk, as we discussed last night, with this extraordinary move of UFO sightings and discussion and history and background from the fringe the weirdos, the fanatics, the fanboys into the mainstream. With two major competing papers, the New York Times and the the, uh, Washington Post, now in direct competition for who can dig out the deepest, most important stories relating to UFOs. Renamed, of course, you can't really do that, UAPs. But I guarantee you, UAPs is not going to stick. UFOs is going to stick because it's become synonymous in the public mind with UFOs equal ETs equal the other. Some outside intelligence brushing up against ours for many, many, many decades to which governments uniformly have said, nothing here, move along, move along, nothing here. Which brings me to item number five. In the midst of all this, remember Musk just got... Elon Musk, you know, SpaceX just got the 
sole source contract from NASA to develop the Lunar Lander, part of the Artemis program. Um, in other words, he's going to build his rocket ships with federal money to be part of the Artemis uh, much more complex program of, you know, huge rocket, Orion spacecraft, gateway, lunar landers. Well, he gets to build or, or to, shall we say, uh, provide his spacecraft, his Starship spacecraft as the lunar lander. And then, of course, there were big objections from the other two companies that lost the bid, uh, Bezos and I forget what the other group is. They're out of West Virginia. And we'll see how that comes down in the, in the, with the Government Accountability Office. But what, what this presages, and the, one of the reasons this is part of the, tonight's conversation, is because the claim has been that SpaceX was, was having a technical problem with building enough engines to fulfill its contract with NASA vis-a-vis Artemis. And that story basically says... Uh, according to Musk, that they're building a rocket engine every 48 hours, which would more more than keep enough in the bank to supply NASA's needs besides their own. But this opens up a larger set of implications, because if you have private space groups, organizations, corporations, with the proven dexterity and technical excellence of SpaceX, it means that space itself the moon, Mars, the solar system is not going to be privy for much longer to the private machinations of nation states, of governments. In fact, it's going to be a free-for-all with lots and lots of private enterprise and private missions and private eyes looking at everything out there, beginning with the moon and it will be unstoppable. Is this part of the reason for the sudden move toward disclosure of UFOs? Is this part of the reason why someone is pressuring the Chinese government to, for God's sake, don't tell them what's really on Mars? So they go dark for three weeks. In other words, are we in the midst of an extraordinary absolutely mind-boggling revolution, which in fact encompasses not only the moon, but Mars, and much and everything beyond. Um, I'm going to have a very interesting conversation with our uh, good friend, uh, Richard Grossinger. In fact, let me give you a little preview. The reason, one of the reasons that I'm having Richard on tonight is because we're kind of entering phase two of an experiment and adventure that we both embarked on decades ago, back in the 1980s, when I published my first kind of magnum opus on extraterrestrial archaeology, The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever. And the publisher and the publisher's company that chose out of all the gin joints that I had gone to, to actually publish this document was none other the North Atlantic Books, and his publisher, Dr. Richard Grossinger. I'm not quite sure then what he saw in this work, and I'm not quite sure now what he has seen of its extraordinary advances on many fronts, or the interlocking tentacles, that's an inside joke, 
uh, to all the other things we're going to talk about tonight. But we're going to find out right after we take a short break for our usual top and bottom of the hour, you know, interludes on the other side of midnight. And so without further ado, and with the dulcet tones of Elton John in the background, talking about my favorite planet, you are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. As a kite flies in, I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out there on such a timeless flight. Revolution 2.0 is called Gates Ag 1, and it's highly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates. The mission statement is all about how we must accelerate the deployment of new technologies to indigenous farmers, and it's going to help them with climate change, right? It all, again, it all ties back to that. And we must go in and take their heirloom genetics away from them, right? These, these precious, uh, hardy, resilient seeds that have fed those people in various parts of the world for generations, for, for hundreds of generations in some cases, and replace them instead with newly genetically engineered, CRISPR modified, bastardized. That's why I say they're defiling the food supply. AgTech, as it's called. And so this is why we now need to introduce the idea of a acute food crisis. And I would suggest that they have engineered, and we're staring right now down the barrel of this is the, the urgency in tonight's conversation uh, of an engineered food shortage. And they will use this food shortage, which you're starting to see now around the world, especially as the big bread baskets have started to experience crop failures. And they're shutting down their exports of grains, corn and soybean prices are rising precipitously. That means that the countries that depend on those exports, the net importers, are all already experiencing food crises. And so this is spreading around the world right now. And what will happen as we, you know, as we get through this is you'll see the media and these think tanks and the UN, all these, all these players will point at the problem. 
it's just the Hegelian dialectic again, right? They'll say, now you see, because of climate change, this mm-hmm. is why we're having these food shortages, and of course the pandemic. And this is why, this is why we have to move into indoor vertical farms and lab-grown meat. And this, you, there's no option. Now, now you feel the pain, and now you see why we've been doing this. We've had your interests at heart the whole time. We're from the government. We're here to help. Right, so there's an acute crisis situation that we're now walking into, and that will be used to bring all of this nasty technology in. This is Christian Westbrook with the Ice Age Farmer, and you're listening to the other side of the news. Sunday night, January, January, June 6, 2021. Actually, in 1944, on this date, an extraordinary event happened in modern history. It was the D-Day invasion. And uh, my friend uh, Robert Morningstar, on his show uh, a day or two ago, maybe yesterday, did a very elegant uh, appreciation of the greatest generation, my father was a member of the greatest generation and they saved the world from fascism and Nazism and variants thereof. And there seems to be a need once again to save the world from those same things, except now they have little different forms and they don't come at you directly. And they have confused so many people in so many places, which of course is why in my perception, it is really the only thing that can save us. Space, the final frontier, the identity of who we really are and how close we are related compared to who and what is out there. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Well, let me give my guest of the morning a proper introduction because Richard is much, much more than just uh, my former publisher. Let me get the right screen up here. 
He has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan. He is the former publisher of North Atlantic Books, the author of several of his own books, including Dark Pool of Light, Reality, and Consciousness, The Night Sky, Soul and Cosmos, and Bottoming Out the Universe. He currently lives in Portland, Maine, and then sometimes he lives in Berkeley, California, which, of course, is where I met him because I also lived in Berkeley. Actually, he was kind of north, north, north Oakland. Uh, Grosvenor's writing can be divided into three overlapping categories, <clears throat> general experimental prose. Uh, you're going to you know, dip into the COVID-19 thing tonight, and you're going to be pleasantly, pleasantly rewarded. Books on topics in science viewed historically, cross-culturally, epistemologically, esoterically, and in terms of pop culture, and autobiographical memoirs. All the works arise through a literary sensibility. During the 70s, uh, Richard read and spoke at a number of institutions, including the University of California in Santa Cruz, SUNY at New Plots, Franconia College, Kent State, the Chicago Poetry Festival, West Virginia University, Kaiser State, St. Mark's Church, and it goes on and on. Grossinger has also studied Tero, Tai Chi, Hinsing One, Craniosacral Therapy, Qigong, Dream Work, Bioenergetic Therapy, Lomi Work, Gestalt Movement Work, Brima Classes, and Yoga. And more recently attended Psychic Kindergarten at the Berkeley Psychic Institute, and then continued his psychic studies from there. He's currently coordinating a psychic group seasonally when he is in Maine. And without further ado, Richard, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Well, we've been going for quite a while. There's so much to gather up, and uh, I don't know really quite where to begin. <laughs> that was my uh, question. Uh, like, where, with this incredible smorgasbord? Well, first of all, I think you read um, a... Uh, a biography from about 20 years ago. I'm not, not quite, I mean, these things stay around. So, um, but whatever, uh, it, it's a little bit out of date, but I actually live in Bar Harbor, Maine now. Okay. Don't, don't live part-time in Berkeley, but I did meet Richard in Berkeley in the mid eighties. And that's more interesting to deal with than my biography. <laughs> um, and there, uh, I actually met him at the moment at which I wrote and had published. Yeah, he, of um, course, is the, not here. So he's being referred to in the third person. But, <laughs> um, uh, I met Richard. Um, because I read an article in the newspaper in the San Francisco Chronicle about his work with Mars. And I had just published a book on kind of astronomy, astrology. That was the night sky book. Soul and the Cosmos. Yeah, the original, the original version of it before it was subtitled soul and cosmos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I thought, well, this guy turned out to live, only a handful of blocks from me. And so we began talking and we got together and eventually I discovered he needed somebody to help him with publishing that book. And so it happened. But now that we're what, 35 years later, is, I, is that the quick math? Correct. Good um, grief. How time does fly. 
Um, now that we're that much later, I kind of reflect back. Richard asked the question, what did I see in it? Of course, that's false modesty because it was um, a kind of brown, groundbreaking book at the time. Whatever you think about the mo monuments on Mars, the face on Mars, Sidonia, and so forth, um, by raising the questions that he did at the time, he started many, many separate discussions and layers and levels of discussion, which have matured over the years and gone down different trails. And all of that could be felt almost hauntingly in, in his writing then. Um, and the book was a haunting book and it, it, it's hard to even know what genre it was. It was <laughs> speculative science. It was science fiction. It was um, extraterrestrial kind of, archaeology. That's all. And it was extra, okay, extraterrestrial <laughs> archaeology. But Richard and I check in at various distances. Sometimes a decade passes, sometimes only a year or part of a year. But we have checked in over time. And in visiting with him tonight, him in New Mexico and me in Maine, um, I was, was musing about what, what is really exceptional about his work. Um, and so I told him I wanted to give my view of that um, <laughs> because I've really, it's the only way I can kind of get located in this discussion um, because Richard builds up a head of steam and momentum and throws so many curves at you all at once that you barely can start down one before the next one comes. So I'd like to kind of cut through some of that and just say that here are the things that really kind of stand out long term. Um, number one, I, I don't think it's whatever Richard thinks, and he can speak for himself, I don't think the Mar all, all these issues will be finally resolved in our lifetimes, nor do I think that that's really what his achievement is, whether the relative truth or veridicality of any one thing. I think when he started with Monuments of Mars, when you started with Monuments of Mars, Richard, to not talk about you in the oh, third Oh, hi there. Yes, yes, I'm right over here. When you started on Monuments of Mars, what you did, which was unique, was to look really closely at another planet, ask questions that nobody was asking. And the people who weren't asking the questions were exactly the people who were supposed to be asking those sorts of questions. And you cut through all that and posed alternate, alternate narratives um, that came from extremely close observation of, um, of an, another planet's surface, the kind of observation that just wasn't being done. Instead, what you had were people projecting um, their kind of, uh, they were projecting an image based on what they either presumed that they would find or what it looked like on Earth or one thing or another. 
and you you went a totally different route and said, let's really look at this from the standpoint of another paradigm, um, the possible habitation of Mars, and then later the um, possibility of different kinds of energy fields and planetary cataclysms and so forth. Now, some people may think that's um, valid, and other people may think that it's completely um, fabricated and, um, and, and, and like just inflated out of nothing. And it, it, to me, it doesn't matter at all either way because it's not going to be resolved uh, definitively. Let me interrupt but, you. <clears throat> yes, it will be. <clears throat> and long before you and I shuffle off this mortal coil. The rate of the increase of accessibility of the solar system to ordinary people, I go back to my news item on Musk, is asymptotic. It is going through the roof. It's, it even exceeds the, uh, the rate at which this uh, <clears throat> mRNA um, uh, you know, virus uh, modality was, was invented in kind of like a year with a 17-year you know, lead time. The point is, accessibility, cheap accessibility to the solar system is going to make it possible for ordinary folks, beginning with the moon, to verify everything I've ever claimed. And of course, the physics itself, which is a separate thing that has to be done in laboratories. I mean, there's a very famous guy. He used to be head of the astronomy department at Harvard. His name is uh, Abby Loeb. And he's written a book, a whole book on the extraterrestrial archaeology of Oumuamua, this first singular Mm -hmm. object that came into the solar system clearly on an interstellar trajectory, whipped around the sun, then left never to return. And he and I are uh, only one of two people, two of two people, who have looked at this data and said, oh my God, this thing was artificial. The thing that Loeb focuses on as the key modality for differentiating between a natural object and the artificial object, which was the anomalous motions of a Muamua as it left the solar system, which are so non-Newtonian, so non-relativistic, so non-any mainstream theory that Loeb and his colleagues created one model, which can be easily falsified. And I have created, based on the physics that I learned in the geometry of Sidonia, a totally other model which can be tested, and when I get Loeb on the show, which we will do, I'm going to propose that he, with the resources of Harvard College, can in fact, in the lab, demonstrate the physics and attach it to Oumuamua's anomalous motions, and so the revolution is not going to be decades away, or maybe even a decade away. Richard, you and I are going to, in the next three or four years, see a stunning confirmation of a whole bunch of outrageous things that I have said. Okay. Well, my point was that it didn't matter that what was See, and I can't understand how you as a scientist can say it doesn't matter unless you're approaching this purely as an intellectual, metaphysical, esotericist, esotericist uh, guy who, which one of the reasons why I kind of you know, like what you write because you think outside the box like I do. Well, I, I, I don't identify myself as a scientist. I mean, I, I find science interesting, but not the most interesting thing. And um, 
I, um, uh, I, I always liked the line that my philosopher friends from years ago, Andy Lug said, which was, he commented on my using science in my writing. He said, um, he said, science interests you. It doesn't interest me. I figure things have to work somehow and it, and, and I could care less how they do. Mm. And I'm sort of, from a material standpoint, that's sort of where I am too. I think everything you say is in some ways much more interesting than you think it is, because you think it's interesting if it can be proven. And I, I don't think it, I don't think it can or will be proven. Um, uh, I, and I, Oh, I could and, make a lot of money on this one. <laughs> with, with who? And the I enterprise mission could use I it. Think Oumuamua, I, I think Oumuamua is really interesting. It was kind of though a whole separate topic. I think that's one of the things that's hard about the dialogue is that we have, you know, like 11 separate topics going at the same time. And, um, you could tie them all together. Well, that was another thing I was actually going to credit you with. Um, you you were very prescient and precocious in opening. This is a very subtle point and hard to make, so I don't even know if I'm going to pull this off. You were very um, prescient in seeing that science in that, that it's not just Mars or NASA or for that matter, the COVID or Wuhan or whatever. It's that the entire scientific paradigm is shot through with flaws, with political overlays and with um, professional um, goals that are put ahead of the actual science, whatever that is. You read that and demonstrated it in terms of Sidonia 35 years ago. And in doing that, you set, uh, you, you set kind of the template in suing generations to find the same sorts of pileups, conspiratorial, quasi-political um, sort of mishmashes created by scientists who... I think some are well-intentioned, some are think they're well-intentioned, but are actually pro professionally or politically motivated. Others are probably not well-intentioned, but you read all that at a time when people actually believed that, that science was uh, an honest broker. And that was the second thing you did. You, you, um, you, opened it up. God knows it's, it's going crazy now mm. to sense that um, people are, I think people believe that you can pretty much make anything up and get it to get it to fly, which is a whole other thing. Um, and I would go back to your original monuments of Mars and point out that um, how to say this so it's not going to sound insulting to you. <laughs> um, when there's a certain way in which your proposal of Sidonia was like the forerunner of QAnon, um, 
not in the sense of a manipulated conspiracy theory, but in the sense of a populist response to um, being fed um, scientific information that had as its ultimate purpose uh, kind of kind of enforcing power dynamics rather than pure empirical analysis. I don't know if I kind of got that right the way I want to. I guess in a simpler sense, what I want to say is that, um, and this goes back to my original point, which I know you don't like, <laughs> that it doesn't matter if the whole Sidonia thing, as you yourself um, said at the very beginning, turns out to be a pile of rocks, because there's something else. There's the creation of a much larger archetypal mythology, which simply rings true. There's the for all the um, for all the fables and conspiracy theories and myths and whatever that you've created. Well, even if one doesn't believe them literally, they ring true. And that's where you and I go in very different directions. You, you think these things will be confirmed and that even, it even matters whether they're confirmed or not. I don't think they will be confirmed. And I also think it doesn't matter because I don't think it's where the rubber meets the road. Hmm. Um, I don't know who the guy was suddenly talking about uh, agriculture and seeds. Oh, we have, a, we have a companion program that's on Friday nights called The Other Side of the News. And Kinsia uh, and her colleagues produced that separately from The Other Side of Midnight. And that was a guest that they had on, I think, a couple of uh, Fridays ago. And he represents something called ice farming. or I haven't followed it closely. But obviously he has the you know perspectives that – nasty, evil, horrible corporations and governments are going to enslave humankind by forcing us all to eat uh, processed stuff grown in vertical farms in, in cities. And one of the things I pride myself on this uh, network I we're doing... That's, that's interesting. Well, I, I want to provide a, a panoply of voices, a diversity of voices, many of whom I do not agree with, but I certainly agree in the, in the First Amendment. So that's why you know, Kintia can pick the guest she wants to put on. And all I ask is documentation and people do come up with documentation. So it opens the dialogue. You know, I'm, I'm for opening as opposed to closing options, models, ideas, because we need more out of the box thinking or the human race really is doomed. I mean, that's one thing I think you can, you and I can agree on that. If we don't, if we keep doing the same thing we've done, which is the Einstein definition of insanity, we're all going to die, and that's why I think space and the fact that we have an extraordinary suppressed history, when we can prove it and we're not that far away, in contrary to your perception, I think it will change everything for the simple reason that at the core of every human being, I don't care whether they're Chinese or North African or you know Maltese or American or whatever, is the, is the need, the desperate need of identity to know who you really are and where you came from and the whole human race has been snookered with a huge lie about where we came from and that lie will be turned to dust 
with the first confirmation, like the whole UFO thing out of the Pentagon, the first confirmation by some mission. It may not be us. It may not be the Chinese. It may be a total – it may be Musk himself because I have a strong suspicion based on you know, political evidence and media evidence and interviews he's done and tweets he's made that Musk knows everything we know about Mars and then more, and he's not saying a word because it isn't politically time yet. Well, I, um, I th- I've always been interested in space and planets, and I had a Mars scrapbook as a teenager, and oh, I could go on with stories about my own interest in it, and I've written about it, but I don't, I don't feel that the answer is going to come from outer space. Um, or that, um, or that it's nearly as interesting as what's, I mean, inner space is a really silly way to put it. It's a cliche, but I think that there, and I, and I think this about UFOs that, that there's more and kind of interdimensional or transdimensional reality that expands right here you don't even have to go as far as the moon it's embedded in the dimensionality of the earth and the sun well you're talking and, about the hyperdimensional physics model well you are i'm not i i wouldn't call it a hyperdimensional physics model i would i would just say that that we ourselves are attuned to all sorts of fields and energies and intelligences that we have blocked out. And that's the hyperdimensional physics model, yes. In Um, fact, many times I've said the reason we're in such extremists here, Richard, the physics is broken. It's not the way it should be. And as we get later in the evening, I'm going to bring up some evidence that I want to bounce off you and see what your reaction is. But if the physics under which we are living is broken, either inadvertently or deliberately, then the connection between consciousness and the field and the larger gestalt and the universe itself is not the way it should be. And that's, I think, explains why you have these widely divergent experiences and reports from some people who get it, who feel it, who, who, um, what's the, what's the, uh, uh, Heinlein, Grok, who Grok it, and those that don't, they can't. Right, and the and and on that, you know, we more or less agree. Oh my God, he we, just said it. <laughs> okay, um, well, hold it there. We are at the uh, bottom of the hour. Or, no, I, I, are we at the bottom or the top of the hour? No, we're at the top of the hour. Yeah, got to read my clocks correctly here. So hold it there. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Grossinger, who, as you can tell from his uh, out-of-date bio, God, the things he's done recently. <clears throat> is kind of a generalist, and though he holds a degree in anthropology, I guess he doesn't think that anthropology should begin in testable empirical science, or maybe he does, I don't know. That's one of the reasons I wanted him on again tonight, because we have so many things going on on the planet, so many divergent strains of developments, of all the stuff that people are trying to figure out as they're trying to survive and to prevail. And we'll get back to all of that when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guest. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone to the other side of midnight from the land of enchantments the land of the west what used to be thought of as the final frontier and now of course we turn our sights just a little higher and there's all kinds of frontiers and you know Richard I do agree with you that many of them are internal inner space as the 70s term was but what I found that brings both together is that someone left us a set of monuments, a set of geometries, an instruction book for how the universe really works. And how do I know? Because it can be, and it has been tested. And the only reason it's not having this extraordinary cultural revolution on the planet yet is because it's not been officially acknowledged. But when you have diversity, when you have uncontrollable thousands of people spreading across the inner solar system, which is going to happen in not decades, but in the next few years. Everything that's perceivable, that's documentable, that's photographable, and is unstoppable because it's all coming down in social media, it's all going to hit everyone at all kinds of different levels. And again, I think the resonant message when we figure out who the hell we really are and why we're here. I think that cannot help but have a profound change. And it will be responded to by all kinds of different people at different levels. But that's how social transformations take place. Like the Renaissance, discovering something brand new that has been unthought of by 99.999% of people who think the human race in its current form originated here on earth a la evolution or god and when they find out that evolution is a little different than they've been taught and that god may be very different than they've been taught there will come the revolution so sorry i go on i go on well it's always interesting i you know uh, 
that we all think in many layers and, and frames uh, simultaneously. I can I can get interested in that and picture that and have some enthusiasm about it, but it's not what strikes me as the most interesting or or I mean it's not the thing that's most interesting to me. What's more interesting to me is that um, I mean. You can locate it anywhere you want. I, I think it's uh, as a shorthand, I would call it a kind of Sethian perspective, um, the the channeled entity Seth's view of the universe, which is that this entire display that we're looking at is a camouflage universe and that there's a whole other field within it that explains why we're here and what we're to do here, and to use your phrase, who we are. Um, I, my own view, which is so kind of, I mean, the, this is like soundbitey talk rather than uh, getting to it by some sort of um, developmental pattern, is that we are, we collectively, um, and this includes not just humans, but animals and plants and so forth, all create this reality. The, I call it a thought form. I, it's not my term, but I borrow the term thought form. That, that we create a, this consensus thought form, which we then manipulate collectively through our consciousness and through our dreams. And that it's one of many, many possible thought forms and it will eventually dissolve. And we, as the originators of the thought form, will create other thought forms. And that this whole big starry universe, which is really magnificent, is more like an exquisitely created psychic reality than it is the hardcore, solid, you know, groundwork of everything. Um, and so I, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested in it in exactly the same way you are. It's just that it's not, it's not where I land. I, I'm much more interested in how one develops their own layers of perception so that you begin to read this bigger thing. And I consider myself a really rudimentary student of that and come to it very late in my life. But nonetheless, I place an enormous value on that. And I can pay attention to all this other stuff you bring up and I think it's fascinating and why not another renaissance? Um, it does, to me, it doesn't look like that. It looks like we're in much bigger trouble um, than, than that and that there's- Well, that's uh, why I use the term often game changer mm -hmm. uh, way back when long before I met you, I was introduced to futurists, people who actually, <laughs> you know, are consultants to corporations or governments to try to predict the future. Obviously for corporations, if you can predict the future, you can make a lot of money, right? It's mm -hmm. like if you had a time machine, you could go and get the baseball scores for 20 years ahead and bet on every, you know, winner in the national league. Um, so, Futurism became a big item in the 70s, and I was introduced to, you know, the creme de la creme, and they, they told me, one guy in particular told me, he says, 
Futurism can be divided into three views of the world. He said most people, their view of the future is if this goes on. So if you can think of a graph with a vertical and a horizontal set of lines, their view of the future is take any date that they tomorrow and next year and next month and you know 10 years will be basically the same as it is now. All right. That's generally people's view of the future. If this goes on. The second category he said is, you know, people who think they're futurists and they draw on the graph, a flat line going up at some angle. It can be a shallow angle. It can be a steep angle. But this is where we get the idea, you know, like such and such a culture is a hundred years ahead of us in time. You've heard that I presume many times, right? If we meet aliens, they could be a hundred years, a thousand years, you know, that kind of thing. That's the linear curve where, where the line goes up at some predictable rate. And so if you take the time and you plot it on that graph, you know, cultures, if, if discovery and insight and inspiration and social change occurred on a predictable algorithm, you know, flat line elevated, that's how they get that, you know, such and such is so many ahead of so many years ahead of us or behind us or whatever. He said, this is my, my tutor, I think it was the uh, Futures Institute there in Middlebury, uh, Connecticut. He said the real futurists realize that the future is not linear. It's certainly not tomorrow will be the same as today. It's asymptotic, meaning the curve starts out shallow. And as it goes further ahead in time, you know, moving, let's say, right on the graph, it begins to go vertical and then straight up. And so you can't quantify in terms of time any culture or civilization or technology is so many years ahead because all it takes is one insightful discovery which changes everything and catapults you into an asymptotic where things change at the rate of several times per week or per month or sometimes even per day. And that's the inflection point, Richard, I think we're at, where do not forecast the future based on what's been happening or what happened 10 years or 20 years or 100 years ago, because the future is not predictable that way. It's, it's sudden, incredible jumps. The, the very famous evolutionary biologist, uh, Stephen Gould at Harvard, had a theory for evolution called punctuated equilibrium, where he basically coded this idea, that the future is not linear, into a set of stunning, incredible leaps in the evolutionary record where there were no intermediary things changing into other things, into other things, you know, the kind of Darwinian, you know, futurist model where it's a linear curve. He said evolution really occurs in these stunning, incredible breakthroughs that make whole families of species obsolete overnight and bring in all new species. Of course, he didn't understand uh, at that time why that happened. Uh, I think it's due to the physics, but that's another discussion. The point is, I think we're on the eve because of the way the physics has been arranged and the way the alignments of the stellar and planetary systems are and where we are in the processional cycle I think we're at the level of 
where we could see the birth of another golden age, a la the you know Indian Vedas. The Vedic model seems much more appropriate to how to predict the future than the Victorian linear, linear it's always getting better at a predictable rate model. Well, that's cheery. <laughs> and testable. You just have to hang on a little longer, or as my grandmother used to say, when you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, it's, well, testable. I'm not sure what that means, but, but I, I do think. It means you're going to live to see it. You're going to experience it. We all are. If I, I, and I, I think the UFO thing is a harbinger of things to come. I mean, you wanted to talk about UFOs tonight, right? Sure. So let's dive into something specific. How do you see the specific foment and revolution and incredibly heretical things being said all over the mainstream media and press by people who wouldn't be caught dead talking about UFOs three days ago? I'm being, you know, I'm kind of exaggerating. Yeah, it's enjoyable. Um, I don't think that anybody has said anything really yet. Um, They're... The the most interesting part of it is that they all acknowledge that they're physical, real objects that are doing things that no physical, real object can do. Okay. Um, He said, said, interrupting, you know, the doctor again, but Richard, that's the whole ball of wax, right? You've said the quintessential magic words. The doctor should come down and pay you $200. Remember the old uh, uh, Harpo Marx thing? Uh, Groucho Marx. Um, because the biggest the biggest restraint on human evolution that I've learned over my however many decades I've been doing this is the lack of imagination. What you can't imagine, you can't make real because you'll never test it. You'll never try it. You'll never experience it. You'll never venture your toe into the deep ocean. If you can't imagine it, for you it doesn't exist. The very thing that's kept the whole UFO space, who are we, what's on other planets, all of that in the closet has been the establishment and the governmental media, you know, very evil conspiracy to keep this beyond the pale where it could not be considered as another aspect of life. That lid, as I laid out in great length with my guest last night, has been lifted and with the lifting of that lid, there is nothing that cannot happen. Credible accelerated rate because we've been kept down on the farm, or as Alex Jones calls it, the prison planet, by the forced, relentless suppression of the reality of what's going on all around us. Well, that's uh, – <laughs> I. Too much, Richard. It's like it's going in all directions at once, and I'm not sure which one to chase. But I I like all the UFO stuff without buying into some of uh, the metaphors here. But the um, I, but what do you like I, about I, it? You say you like it. What do you like the, about it? The, the the fact that the fact that the same thing you like, which is that the switch has happened. That the, I'm not sure that the switch has happened because these people are fascinated by the real possibilities. What most people are saying 
is is more along the lines of uh, something's violating our military space, and we better know what it is. Um, and it's all being uh, kind of legitimized in terms of a military threat still. But isn't um, that the way it would happen in our 3D reality? Yeah. I mean, can um, you imagine it being gestalt where suddenly we realize there are angelic beings from Alpha Centauri <clears throat> who've been amongst us and we can't see them because they're at a different frequency? No, it has to start just a little bit further of where we are now. But it's the rate of the acceleration. And last night we spent three hours discussing what's going to happen next and then after that. And I'm forecasting, along with folks that have looked at this, that what you're going to see is an uncontrollable change of perception and imagination and all the careful, oh, it's not our stuff. It's not really new physics. It's some unknown agents, maybe China, maybe Iran. No way. People are going to zap to the obvious. Come on, guys, it's extraterrestrials. Now, let's get on to why are they here, who are they, and why do they give a damn about us? Um, I, I don't know that it's extraterrestrials. It's, um, it's Well, could I say uh, extra-dimensional? Will that make you happier? Um, well, only in the sense that, that it, um, it allows a wider range of... Okay. Uh, of I'm, I'm totally willing to go with that. Of, of getting here. Totally willing um, to go with that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that an enormous paradigm shift is about to happen, but I, and, uh, and this even plays a role in it, but I don't think that, to me, that's not exactly the paradigm shift that I'm seeing. I'm seeing more I have a friend, actually, who a longtime friend, even longer than I've known you, goes back to when I lived in Vermont in the 70s, who's now hanging out in Albuquerque, um, Mm. Elias Lonsdale, who is a a psychic and does wonderful astrology readings for people. And he, he was, we talk maybe once a week or every other week, and he was remarking, and it's just language. It's, it's not exactly what it is, but he was remarking a couple of days ago that everything has already changed, and we're already living in this whole different world. Only the facade, everybody is wanting to return to normal. They, they want to go back to the old normal, and so the facade is there because it's our consensus reality that everybody and and many many people talk about this people I talk to pretty much worldwide on over a span of months remark on the fact that something fundamental has already changed COVID had something to do with it but it's not just COVID and COVID in a sense is subsidiary to the of the change. I mean, the, just like the political stuff, which has attracted so much attention, mm-hmm. is also a symptom of the change rather than the cause. Um, and it's like... See, it's nothing, like, Richard, you're saying is surprising because I've been saying it on the show since I went on the air on day one, which was in July 20th, 2015. The physics is changing. Consciousness is linked to the physics. In the common vernacular, we're talking vibration 
COVID may fit into that because we suddenly became susceptible to that which we were not susceptible to before, or someone is using it as a, as a weapon to try to strike at the heart of the paradigm shift and the consciousness change. Mm-hmm. They're all together because it's not coincidence. It's linked to this changing physics in my model and obviously in your friend's model because when you said you know we're not seeing the changes yet no i think it's all around us it's just invisible because there are a lot of people desperately clinging to the old paradigms well it's not it's not your model or my model or his model because i don't think that there's a model for it in that sense and i the word physics bothers me in this regard why um um well, for one, because because in some ways you're totemizing it um, in a way that I, I don't ag- agree with. Um, I think physics and mathematics are, are themselves systems that have been created within a certain framework and that there are other systems of measurement and understanding that um, are, well, everything's rooted in everything else. So I won't say they're not rooted in physics in any absolute sense, but you don't arrive at them by getting a physical model. It's, I, I, what I'm striking at, and that's just because you and I have known each other and been <laughs> talking for a very long time and debating and this and that, but, but we always kind of run, run a little bit aground over this difference in perspective. And yet there is obviously like some sort of core empathy and um, an intuition that like a kind of magnetic field holds us in the same dialogue um, so that we don't completely fly off into other universes from each other. And that's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that we still have terms in which we can talk to each mm. other, even though we process information and go through it in a different way. And by the way, um, I, I consider it a little silly to be called Dr. Grossinger. Why? I, I, well, why? Because it, it simply refers to the fact that back in the like 70s, I got a PhD in anthropology, which doesn't qualify me any more than you who did go, you know, to um, get all that education. You, and, and these days, I think young people are discovering that what college is about is spending an awful lot of money to get a credential that you can earn in all sorts of other ways. And you proved that half a century ago. So that you could... Um, that you could learn off the street and uh, and and off of um, and off of NASA and off of um, observation, and all of that seems um, really well. You understand that the real definition in the Oxford Dictionary of a Scientist has, says nothing about degrees. <clears throat> right, it's, it's a that's process. Why we, that's why we should do away with it. Okay, uh, I sort of like. Um, you know, I, I've been playing around because I was writing about chaos magic. The, um, the, you know, that science comes from the Greek for not, you know, scientia, the Greek for knowledge. Yeah, and, yeah. to know. And, and that if you, that I think it's so interesting that 
say in the 18th century to people like Newton and Kepler and, and their colleagues, there wasn't a distinction between religion and science mm-hmm. or between, between alchemy and chemistry and, um, or between astro- astrology and astronomy. And there is the illusion, and it's an accurate illusion on one level, that we have progressed immeasurably from there through just taking the scientific aspects of those people's work. But in fact, the other, the neglected aspect of their work speaks to something that's, I won't say it's deeper, but it's deep in an entirely different way. And in a sense points towards what you're calling physics or dimensional physics. Well, would you be more comfortable, Richard, if I said metaphysics? Because this is how metaphysics works, at least Mm -hmm. according to my model. And we have a resident metaphysician on the show. Her name is Georgia Lambert. She spent over 10 years with Manly Hall, and she teaches classes, and she's been on the show innumerable times. I'm just thinking we should probably have added her tonight because she looks at what I'm saying and what she knows from her other completely mm-hmm. non-scientific background, and she sees how they fit beautifully together. They sing right. together. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I read you in part through theosophy. I mean, you're, you're, like, you're like a theosophist in some ways. Oh, um, here we are with labels again. What's okay. a, 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 explain to people what a theosophist is. So, sorry. And, and, you know, what I'm calling a theosophist would just have all the real theosophists up in arms. So <laughs> it probably all I all I meant to say was to corroborate your mention of Manly Hall and, and indicate that when you bring that up, you point to the fact that you're um, it's, it's kind of like what you're calling physics is in another sense. Um, sacred geometry and is another sense kind of hermetic philosophy and they all kind of, and they all sort of come together yes they do those are the languages of this real metaphysics and mm-hmm. one of the ways that I got onto this was as you start looking at NASA and what they do and when they do it when they launch when they fly by when they land it's according to these deep hermetic so-called secret doctrines with magical numbers and stellar alignments and planetary configurations. It's the most outrageous thing for a supposedly scientific organization in the 20th century until you realize they're operating at two levels. One, the profane, what people look at them and think they're doing, and then the other at a much higher, more esoteric level because they're the space connection between us, Western culture, and everything up and out and around us, the metaphysics. Well, I don't, uh, I don't think, I don't think consciously. No, 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 no. Consciously, ninety-nine point nine nine percent, not consciously. We agree there. Yeah. Hey, you know we're at, we're at another break point. We're at the bottom of the hour. So. Um, yeah, let's let's. I want to say something about Sagan when we come. Oh, back. by all means. Okay, so just kind of hold it there. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger. As you can tell, because we uh, do this all the time, we uh, interrupt, <clears throat> we disagree, we, there's, but there's some 
And this is why I've so admired Richard's work all these years, because at some weird level, there's this, this strange resonance between what he's been doing and whether you get into the COVID paper and what I've been trying to do. And it's that resonance, which is the backbone of tonight's very wide-ranging, I guarantee you, you haven't seen nothing yet, conversation. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone. Sunday night, June 6th, in the land of enchantment, coming to you live from the great American Southwest, which has many, many, many secrets under its reddish Martian-type soil. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger, and we're having this uh, wide-ranging conversation at the edge of the known and the unknown. Where do you want to go next? Richard? Hello? I'm not hearing you. Uh, this happened last night. This is very weird. Nothing I'm done has changed, yet I cannot hear you. Hmm. Very strange. Um, can anybody hear me? Okay, Kanthea is sending me a note, and um, she's saying, what does she say? Let me let me try something here. Okay, hang on. Okay, I'm not hearing anything yet. All right. Can you hear? Ah, now I can hear you guys. What is going on? I think it's a software issue, so. Okay, uh, Richard. All right. Well, can you hear me? I can hear everything fine now. The, the, this happened okay. last night. It just kind of mysteriously cuts out. It's not mechanical. There's nothing, no broken wires. It's just, it's gremlins. It's definitely not scientific. Well, you know, um, when you mentioned um, NASA, and I was thinking about this, uh, my free connection went first to my college classmate, who was an astronaut and subsequently taught at MIT, still, I think, teaches at MIT, Jeff Hoffman. And I... Wasn't you know, he an astronaut for, on the Hubble missions? Yeah. And I have... I He and I have... 
I have had many, many conversations with him about this and you and so on and so forth. And I truly, honestly believe, and you seem to agree with me, that that none of the that he he doesn't believe in any of this, and he thinks it's <laughs> ludicrous, and he doesn't he doesn't think anybody at NASA thinks any of this, and he is not being I, I don't think he's being displicitous at all, and then my mind can I can to, I can I stop you there because I agree totally. Because from the beginning of trying to track this whole hyperdimensional thing, which started back in Sidonia, then I found terrestrial counterparts and confirmations. The biggest question of all was how much of it is being done consciously by practitioners of arcane rituals, you know, sympathetic magic, uh, astrological alignments, gaining energy, you know, gain of function of the physical, whatever term you want to use. And how much of it is simply the resonance, the resonance nodes of experience and development of events in a resonant universe where there are all kinds of, you know, interfering and constructive and destructive wave patterns. And when you get to the nodes, these things just fall out because that's when the reality structure of the matrix we're in forces them to coincide and to produce these patterns these two and they're not totally separate because there's an overlap but basically one of the main questions i always ask when i see these patterns how much of it is conscious not pretty much at all frankly now and how much of it is part of the reality structure in which we're immersed and i'm leaning more and more to the resonant model of patterning in a matrix that's guided by this physics or it's it's almost like an astrology more than it is an astrology it's hyperdimensional astrology and i've had rick levine who was an astrologer friend of mine in seattle that i've known i think i've known him almost as long as i've known you and maybe we should all get together some night and just kind of look at this from that perspective yeah, well, the reason I mentioned Sagan, my mind went to that next because we we both knew him to some degree or other. Um, and when I did my interview with him, which was a long time ago, it was pre-Cosmos, it was 1972, and I was very unsophisticated in how I approached it and him, and he kind of just laughed and blew blew it off. But I, I was talking about the astral realm and God knows what. It, it, none of it registered at all with him. He just laughed. But then he did that movie, right? Um, well, the movie in which um, the space travel was completely psychic. Yeah, contact. Contact, right. So did he change? Or no, was he, was, he, was, he was dissembling. He was showing you his public persona, whereas privately he has always believed and espoused all these things. It's just politically climbing the ladder to success and becoming the world super scientist that he became by making the Faustian bargain. He had to deny that aspect of him. And the reason I know this is not just, you know, stories, but for real. Remember, I took him on a couple of my cruises. Many years ago, I borrowed major ocean liners and we sailed to fascinating places around the planet. And I remember one night vividly, 
we're in the QE2 in a corridor. A whole bunch of us are sitting because the waves are kind of, uh, shall we say, steep and the, the, the um, um, you know, stabilizers were not, at least for our sensitivities, working that well that night. So we're all sitting on in this corridor, beautiful carpeted corridor in the middle of the QE2, uh, close to the roll axis so we don't go up and down. So we're kind of near the center of, of motion. And Sagan is sitting there, back against the wall, feet stretched out. A whole bunch of us are sitting there. And he's smoking a joint, and he's discoursing to us about the most extraordinary esoteric metaphysics you can imagine. That was the real Carl, the guy you met, was a synthetic NASA Carl that he had to play in order to step up the ladder and become the guy he publicly. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, and you wonder how, how many personae there are now, public personae, who actually believe different things. You're asking um, exactly the right question, Dr. Uh, Grossinger. As an anthropologist, no, you're asking exactly the right question. Um, well, it's one it's 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 one question. That, I mean, it's it's, a, it's maybe exactly the right question in the sense it's, it marks a territory where we overlap in the way we look at. Did look you at ever did you ever there. see the Jim Carrey movie Liar Liar? No, I always like the Truman Show. Oh, my God. That's one of my favorites because we're in the Truman Show, of course. Right, because we're in the Truman Show, and um, and that's kind of haunting. Oh, it's haunting, haunting, yes. In fact, and, it's so haunting funny. that the other day when I mentioned it, when I came to the computer, for some reason the Truman Show on my computer, where I had not selected it at all, was playing. Now, you explain that, all right? That's that's a resonance. Uh. That's the metaphysical hyperdimensional resonance. Anyway, back to Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. After the success of the Truman Show, you know, Carrey could do anything he wanted to, right? Now he's painting for some reason. Anyway, he did a little film called Liar Liar where he plays an attorney. And I don't know how it happens, but the attorney is somehow cursed by beings or gods or whatever that for 24 hours he has to tell the truth. In every scenario, he is compelled. It's not that he's told he has to. He just simply cannot tell a lie. So as a lawyer, telling the truth is, of course, the death to his profession, right? That's, that's the running you know, in-joke in the whole film. But see, that's what the physics is doing to us now. Because so many of these public persona, these public people who have private and public differentiated thoughts, they seem compelled to blurt out the truth regardless of what it does to them professionally, personally, in terms of credibility. It's, I, it's, 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 it, I kind of synopsize it by saying that the physics is mandating is the good are getting better and the bad are getting worse in public. And I'm not hearing anything in my headphones. Oh, it, there yeah, you. it went blank for a minute there. <laughs> See, you can't tell certain truths on this show. <laughs> well, um, I, I, it, you're talking about that pushes me toward another insight that I've been working on myself. Oh, lately, cool, cool. Which is that 
because I'm very interested. The the that list of practices I've done was a little bit ridiculous. You know, <laughs> uh, I I took a few yoga and shigun classes. Some of the things I have done seriously, like I have, I did study cranial sacral therapy seriously, and, and still it's still in me. And I did do a lot of Tai Chi, but in recent years, I've done a lot more. I've been much more interested in meditation in both Buddhist and psychic meditation. And I've been thinking a lot about, again, this is a rather subtle point that's hard to get across, that many, many people do a variety of practices. Some of the practices extremely sophisticated and and difficult and they train very um profound and uh, and kind of approaching enlightened states of being and i i've come to feel that that's one mode and then there's the actual reality of people's beingness which simply proceeds regardless of what they do, regardless of what they practice, and that it represents a deeper level of practice that's going on all the time. And, and I thought about the forms of Buddhism that address that, that address the notion of the meditation that doesn't require a particular mode of meditation, but has to do with how you're looking at things on a continuous basis and i just asked these questions about about myself because i batted back and forth over my lifetime with thinking i had to learn a particular thing or i had to practice something i was a better person if i practiced this or that or if i didn't do this or that and i've i i've kind of gradually come around to thinking that um there's a fundamental flow of information. There's a fundamental, just from the very fact of existing, there's a fundamental level of meditation and attention. And I'm, I'm just interested in the tension between the practice. I think you have to do serious practices of one sort or another to have any texture. But on the other hand, if you commit to those practices as being the answer, you actually lose the central, um, I don't know, the essential driving energy of your own incarnation, for lack of, a, uh, of another way to phrase it. So it's not exactly what you're saying, but it, it's a parallel set of insights because in a, in a, how I would bring them together is to say that we're looking at a world in which the majority of what comes across to us publicly, either as teachings or as information and news and science or whatever, it, it, it's, it's, the, um, it's what people choose to align, align themselves with, define themselves by, um, but it's not actually who, who they are. And that um, maybe, I'm just thinking aloud now, maybe one of the reasons why the world is in such turmoil at the moment is because that tension is becoming so much more um, 
uh, it's becoming more tighter and more urgent and people are, I don't know, you, you can chip in here. I, I sort of <laughs> drifting off. I mean, well, again, in the model I'm advocating, the amplification of the physics amplifies who we are and there are good people and bad people. There are, you know, disoriented people, there are ignorant people, there are pretenders, there's a huge spectrum of human approach to life. And what this is doing is sharpening the contrast and the colors so it's easier to see who people are regardless of the public social mores and the pretenses and the lies and all this other stuff. It's, it's Jim Carrey's Liar Liar where he was compelled to tell the truth. Yeah, I don't think it's good people and bad people. I just think it's it's people at different stages of development and and self-awareness. I think mm, what amounts okay. what amounts All right. I, I can go with that. But I what, I have met some very malevolent bad people. They they do exist. Well, the uh, yeah, but I I th- I still think it's it, it's it's driven by fear. I don't think I don't think people are bad people or do bad things in, in, intrinsically because that's their nature. I think that the terror of this reality is so great, and this is an extremely challenging reality that we're all in. Hmm. Because even the people who are having fun are facing the the fundamental, you know, quality of samsara and the and the underlying suffering that's built into it and and you know the it's it's a world it's a world filled with um incredible beauty and power and also with deep loss and regret and i think that the people who do bad things are the people who want to who think who have the illusion that they could wrest control over this reality and somehow bend it to their own comfort and safety. And of course it doesn't, it doesn't work. It works, it works temporarily. You know, it's like, I, I often think of that old twilight zone, you know, the one where the bad guy gets to go, he thinks he's gone to heaven and you know, he gets there and he has everything he wants and servants and they, they, they bring him everything he desires and he is driven so crazy by it. Mm-hmm. He, you remember that? He of course, one yeah. Of- vivid, vivid. Serling was a genius. He was so out of step with the time. Such a forerunner of something else. So, I mean, well, to end that, he says, I want to go to the other place. And they say, <laughs> you are in the other place. You are in the other place. And by the way, before I completely blow it on this, because I really don't like promotion or care about it, but the book of mine that's active and new is is the, the book Bottoming Out the Universe. And a lot of what I have to say about these themes is in that book. Likewise, the thing Richard was referring to was stuff I, I eventually gathered about 35 different people together, mostly at the beginning of the pandemic, 
but I think some of the insights, many of the insights hold up still. Um, and, and made an anthology called The Corona Transmissions, kind of based on a, on a, a kind of um, evolutionary view of the virus that um, it, it, it certainly wasn't what you would wish for or a beneficent thing, but it was a teacher. And they were things that we were collectively and individually learning. So I biased the anthology that way. I had uh, people wrote essays, poems, healing. He, um, I, a lot of the healing stuff in that anthology is still very accurate because, uh, and we could go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I don't think that, um, that the ways of treating the virus, I mean, it's like the ways that people who I respect who are in the medical profession are treating the virus successfully those methods range from disreputable, um, uh, they range from disreputable to illegal. Um, and, um, you know, and then there, there's the whole, uh, there are all the ambiguous levels about the vaccine. I mean, if, if the virus is up for grabs, so is, so is the vaccine up for grabs. And, um, and, you know, the police could come to the door if we start discussing that, the, the virus police and the vaccine police, the, the you know, even, even educated dialogue about these topics has been so tabooed. Isn't that so bizarre? It's totally bizarre. It, it's, um, See, to me, it's we, almost biblical. Remember the line in Genesis where it talks about he, God, confused their language because he oh. was afraid they'd all become one people? Oh. I see that's going on now, and it has nothing to do with language as we think of it. It has to do with perceptions of reality where you can have two people who are occupying the same 3D space, and they look at what's going on, and they have totally opposite interpretations, and both people are totally sincere. Well, they are sincere. I think another, there are many different things that are happening simultaneously. Another thing that I think is happening is that people have gotten so polarized that they now only identify with the pole that they're at um, as if it were a team that they root for. Um, and they are not, they, they can't actually vary off that because they'll be seen as disloyal to their team. They can't root for the other team. And if you carry that through to any sort of rational dialogue about these things, um, there isn't any because people have declared their alliance and then they have to defend it. So I have been looking for this show. Sorry, Richard. I've been looking for an epistemologist, the right guy or gal, because I think part of our problem is we no longer teach at any level that I can, you know, find epistemology. How do we know what we know? When I got into the whole monuments thing, remember Randy Pozos, who's Mm -hmm. another anthropologist? Well, his take in his book on our conference at SRI was from a very epistemological perspective. He was delighted not so much as 
he kind of came down like you are. It doesn't matter whether there's a civilization or not. It's asking the questions that's important. And so he got into this whole epistemological discussion and argument in his you know, coffee table book, The Face on Mars, uh, which I think is still out there somewhere. Uh, I have a couple of copies. Anyway, but he introduced me to this deeper level, how do we know anything? And the fact that people are never taught how to figure things out, they're not taught process. You know, there's lip service given to the so-called scientific method, but nobody really knows how it works. You know, they don't, they're not, you know, systematic. The, the way I've tried to cut my way through this, this jungle of COVID-19, you know, insanity is by holding to a process which allows you to separate real stuff from fake stuff and test the stuff you're looking at to see if it's real or fake. Because now, of course, what's come into contention is every number, every graph, every report of information, every official institution reporting anything about the virus has been totally politicized, so nobody believes anything anymore. Right. And and so the not only are the which you refer to the mortality statistics in, in some in various ways rigged, but also the tests for whether people have COVID or not um, are are testing depending on which test it is. They're testing for totally different things, and it's unclear in many instances whether it's at, whether the uh, that when people become have positive results on the test whether that's really a covid positive result meaning that a lot of numbers from early on are completely muddled and then in terms of the vaccine i mean one of the questions i ask is notice when you know the all the years that went into developing the polio vaccine and jonas salk and the you know the rhesus monkeys and so on and so forth. That is that isn't what happened um, here, as we all know. There are probably what 200 to 300 different vaccines. Um, it's it's an embarrassment of riches or an embarrassment of something else. Well, we've gone is- from, and the reason my my departed dear Robin is was would be so in the middle of this fight is because. Vaccines up until this epidemic were hit and miss and trial and error, and it took years and sometimes decades because it's not really science. It was just, you know, cooking in the kitchen recipes and does this work? And then, you know, you use animal trials and then you, I mean, talk about primitive. You test something you don't know what's going to happen on humans even with their, you know, consent, do they really understand what they're consenting to? This gets into all kinds of ethical and moral and other other areas. Right. But now we have a science, literally of genetics, to where you can precisely configure these molecules, precisely, which is real science. And then, of course, you can test on a much more accelerated time frame. This is going to sound really bizarre. But in my model, the COVID-19 is basically biowarfare from out there, but a group we call the breakaways, long conversation. Wouldn't it stand uh, clear, to reason? Clearly, yes. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it stand to reason that if you have real enemies that are trying to kill or do something 
change a lot of people with a pandemic, that you'd have another group that might be our allies very surreptitiously, quietly, with no fanfare, providing the technology and science to counteract this illegal warfare, this bio-warfare. And one of the reasons that this, you know, these vaccines have been created so incredibly rapidly is not because there was a long tail of prior research, which could be a made-up story, but because we had key help to give us the antidote to what the bad guys are doing, et cetera, et cetera. It gets so complicated so quickly, and the rabbit hole gets, you know, it's as deep as a black hole singularity, that I really, until I have more evidence, I don't want to really talk a lot about that because I like producing evidence that stands up. And the way you know it stands up, it predicts the next thing. Without solid prediction, science is nothing but opinion. Did I lose you again? No, but there your voice your voice stopped for a second there. Yeah, well, there's uh, again so many different directions to go in. I, uh, you know, I, I all off the show, I'll suggest who I think might be some interesting guests around this topic. But maybe this is a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. Well, or, if we're going to get to anything else, we don't we don't really have time to go down. Because when we, when we turn the top of the hour, maybe in 15 minutes or so, we're going to bring on some of the members of the Enterprise Imaging Team, and we're going to kind of try to catch you up on what's been happening with Mars, because there's some really cool stuff that's been happening, certainly with the Perseverance mission and Mars. Okay. Well, I, I can listen for a while, but for me, it really is the other side of midnight. So I'm, I may, you know... Uh, you know, gradually bow out as it gets to the last hour here. Um, okay. Because, well, we'll, we'll kind of just play it by ear. Okay. All right. Go to the, let's see, go to the, oh, yeah, we're at, we're at the top of the hour. Yeah. We're about to reach in the land of enchantment, the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger, who is a generalist, an esotericist, a um, very good writer. He also can think. And we agree on some things, and we disagree on other things, which what makes life interesting. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests.
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone to the other side of midnight for this now Sunday night Monday morning we are on the other side of midnight my guest this morning is Richard Grossinger and so let us uh, return to what we were talking about because I do have a couple of really interesting surprises on this uh, you know what kind of reality are we living in there's some really new NASA evidentiary material which blows the current paradigm if we're close to being accurate totally wide open. Remember I talked a few minutes ago about uh, maybe being in a a broken physics? Well, there could be some real evidence of that, and it comes from many surprising sources. So anyway, let's kind of continue for the next few minutes with where you want to go. Where I want to go? Yeah. Uh, Where do I want to go? I was sort of thinking all these other guests were about to appear. I, I have a question I'd love to ask. Oh, you. yeah. This is Cynthia, our producer. Yeah. I am really yeah. excited. I have to say, folks, his paper is on in his items. It's number one. I read it, and I was like, wow, and wow again. Thank you. Uh, what I really enjoyed about it is this, oh, it's the integration of all the aspects of life. It's seeing life in, in as a whole rather in little segments. I, I often think about the way the sciences are all divided up. It's like you were trying to put fences in the sky so you could partition parts of the universe into these separate little boxes. And what I loved about your paper, Richard, was that there's this um, – integration of of these various aspects of of the experience of of consciousness and life and so i'm curious in relation to mars when i was working on sculpting the face on mars there was this oh was a kind of sense a knowing a kind of resonance it was it was like you know the movie where you 
sculpting the mountain with the mashed mm-hmm. potatoes. It was it was that kind of feeling. And um, I'm just wondering, like this world we're creating with it, it's it's a. I see the world as being very plastic in the sense that it's very malleable and it's an extension of our consciousness. And in that sense, we can interact with life around the universe and with on Mars and, and what I've experienced in talking to other uh, members on the team is this feeling that we all share of this familiarity. And so I'm wondering, like, as you approach this material, are you getting some sense of remote viewing or is there some sense of the continuity of consciousness of life between Mars and here, because that's kind of what's up for us, or at least for me. Well, I know for the other team members as well. I'd like yeah, to hear well, your well, take well, on that. What I think is interesting about that, it almost goes back to where I started in this conversation, is that, and this is what I'd like to emphasize, because I, I don't like right or wrong, I think that there's something intuitively authentic here and that it's very compelling. It was compelling back in the 80s when I first discussed, when Richard was first talking about this. And also that's when you first got into this and were sculpting the face. And uh, it, it seemed, uh, I mean, referring to the close encounters thing seems like the right intuition that you're you're looking at something actual concrete on the surface of mars and yet at the same time you're in a sense you are remote viewing and you don't quite know what you're remote viewing but it has a it has a martian resonance in some deep way and you're you're tuning into a kind of realm of consciousness that is all wrapped around this so what that suggests to me, like the new thing it suggests to me, is that Sidonia and all the elements that Richard discovered there are most interesting in the way that they are kind of evoking another dimension in ourselves. And so maybe what I was sort of partly saying was that it didn't matter if those features were actually at Sidonia because those features are somewhere and we intuitively know that. And they're somewhere that is synchronously and kind of in some quasi-astrological way connected to Mars. And um, I think about how back in the 80s or 90s as a kind of trick when I couldn't get to sleep, I would take a journey in my mind to Sedonia and go look <laughs> myself. I'd, just make up, I'd make up stories, and I have had so many wonderful stories and tricks around it, but, but they always involve being able to go into the monument, and there was the whole history of a civilization that had disappeared. Um, and, and there was that stupid movie where the face just looked like a gimmick. <laughs> I know it would look like an egg. An egg. It was featureless ter- kind yeah, of. Yeah. What was was that? Was that that was that was De Palma, wasn't it? Uh, Brian I De Palma. Think so. yeah, yeah, Bruce's think so. brother, who of course oh, yeah. obviously wound up doing the movie because Bruce, you know, who was a physicist, 
who was doing experimental machines, Richard, with hyperdimensional physics, which is how we got together. His brother, the famous Brian De Palma, uh, wrote a whole movie that was based on what he was getting from his brother about our work. Well, it it was an it wasn't a uh, oh, somebody's put up mission to Mars. It wasn't. Uh, it, yeah, well, that's, it wasn't, that, that was the name of it. It didn't have that movie did not patch into the intuition. No, no, of course not. But that was, that was no, the Palma. That was no. remember you're you're limited by your your by your filters by your you know prognosticators by your what's the word I'm looking for mouthpieces. Yeah, the movie that had nothing to do with the face on Mars was more in some way intuitively correct. Capricorn 1 was much more intuitively correct, even though the face wasn't in it, because they never go to Mars. But in the end, the whole um, scam that they're pulling off, and it was a kind of um, ridiculously put together story, but nonetheless, it was kind of thrilling at the end when the well, guy is what, what it did was it, it sorry to interrupt it it, it, it took the, the idea that NASA's really lying to us uh-huh. and the progenitors of the we never went to the moon remember the moon hoax and all the yeah. you know grassroots you know kind of almost like people's perceptions of the virus and various sub subcultures that don't believe in institutions it basically put on the big screen with uh, O.J. Simpson, of all people. Right, with O.J. Simpson. The idea that NASA ultimately has lied to us. Well, yes, NASA's lied to us about a whole bunch of stuff. Not not going. Go ahead, dear. I want to come back, because we always talk about NASA's lied to us, and we don't always have Richard on here. And I really want to come back to this resonance of of this intuitive uh, knowing, because the experience I was having when I was working on the sculpture was that I was not sculpting something that was a random formation that just naturally forming. I really got this strong sense that it was a deliberately uh, designed structure that I was attempting to um, model that there had been a level of consciousness that had constructed the original face. And I remember even the, when doing the, the face that's on the cliff as you look out and holding it up and saying, oh, my God, I'm probably the first person on planet Earth who's seeing this. Because it was like it was it was such a trip because we'd been looking at those aerial views looking down and now to lift it up and see it horizontally. It was it was really mind blowing. And it was this experience of connecting with the consciousness of those who created the original monument. Well, it also was a trip to Mars. It was without having to have a huge budget. Right. You got got to actually land on the surface. Well, this was long before CGI and three-dimensional modeling. I mean, Cynthia spent thousands of hours breaking her back doing this. And to me, it's it's not it's not a magic at all. It's the mind meld between a great artist and a great artist who did the face sitting there at Sidonia. She resonated. She connected. She linked in like a Vulcan mind meld to an artist <laughs> appreciating art. And 
someone's laughing. She was Richard Dreyfus building the devil's tower in his living room. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know, it was so funny. I, I have, I can't resist. At that time, um, my oldest son was, oh, he was. Well, this was said. This went over several years. I did many versions of the face, and so he was growing up when when. Uh, we first started working on it. He was just under two years old. And then, you know, he was older. So one time I had the projector set up in the living room because I would shift the projector from the 10 degree to the 35 degree, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I was so into this model. And he's trying to get my attention. So he's dragging the mattress down from his bedroom, <laughs> the pillows, the tables, the chairs. And I'm just working and working, and he, he, there was nothing he could do to get my attention. I mean, I was, and so I have a picture of, of what the living room looked like, and it was crazy. It was really crazy because you could see the the the. Uh, I had this long piece of board set up where I had the the clay that I'm working on and the projector that would go up and down and then surrounding it is all this chaos that my son has dragged into <laughs> surrounding me. Oh gosh. It just reminded me of that, that. That'll be a hell of a scene in the movie. Yeah. 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 But, but uh, you were mind melding with, with it, with the art, with the creators of this huge thing, which is Richard, I hate to say it. It is going to determine the future of the human race. The, the juncture, the disconnection, the, totally unimagined positive future we can have dependent on people's imagination to imagine something different and bigger than what we're living now, I think is critically dependent on the culture understanding who we are. And I want to I've, say, Richard, that your book, I mean, listening to you and reading you, honestly, what, what Grossinger was talking about, the, being able to picture yourself there like you could travel there to go to sleep, like it's a cheap form of travel, I mean, an inexpensive form of travel. Your, your writing, I, I have to say, really infused, you know, thousands of people with that vision of, of seeing it. it. It ignited that vision. It was a, can, it was a passing the torch. It was lighting... The, their candle well, so that they with, could see too and all, i and and i love richard grossinger that you talked about how you would travel there and and how we can all travel there actually like this is the realm this is i i totally agree with you we are on the precipice of a huge change in our consciousness collectively and this awareness that we are not confined to these body bags we we can travel with our consciousness and we can experience it. And I, I know how I felt when I was working on that face. I know how I would start shaking inside like a resonance, like kind of it was like when I would dial something in, there was this like tone that would come in that would just kind of vibrate all through me. And, and anyway, there's <laughs> getting yeah. excited. I want to hear from you, uh, Richard Grossinger, because, uh, I just, I, folks, listen, read his paper. It's the first link. Read his paper. It will blow you away. And I want to hear more of what you have to say. Tell me what what is my paper, though. I don't know what it is. It's It's, the one that you sent to uh, Richard about the virus. Only he he put his hyperdimensional name on it. (laughs) 
<laughs> he titled the paper for you. I think it's the one you were talking about. Yeah, it's the one that's in the anthology. We didn't know you had a book, so we want to plug the book. Oh, oh, okay. And the book is up there too. It's the it's link number two. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. So I want and, to hear uh, more about how you view this connection of uh, uh, hmm, the the texture of life, the the way the integration, the. It's like all the walls that have been separating all these different areas are falling down now. We're getting a whole picture. And you so eloquently wrote about it in in the coronavirus paper where you're talking about how it's a, a reflection of our collective conscience, uh, consciousness and, and it's not this, we are not the victims of it. <laughs> That's the point. We're not the victims of it. And I, I want to make space to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I guess what I would say now is, you know, so often things things are true and the opposite. I, the idea that of every great, uh, every great truth, the opposite of it is also a great truth. And uh, that crosses my mind as you mentioned that. I think that I think that absolutely um, the, the the world is on the brink of a transformation. But at the same time, I I don't think that most of the people who are participating in uh, in the biosphere at the moment are. Um, aware of that or are going to be able to make that transformation. Mm -hmm. And yet I also think that, and it's a paradox because I'm kind of contradicting myself, that each person is capable of making that transformation individually and that by doing it individually to whatever degree you're capable of, and people are capable of it in very different ways and to differing degrees, that contributes, you know, like the hundredth monkey or the butterfly wings in Tokyo that changes the weather in New York. Um, and that's all you can do is um, the, the population of the world is too massive and the people on this or that street and this and that continent are going to be involved in what they're involved in. And they're certainly not involved in what we're talking about. They've got other urgencies. Yeah, but Richard, let me, let me stop. Okay. Cause frankly, I don't agree with anything you just said. This is why. Okay. Sure. <clears throat> Remember a guy named Teilhard de Chardin. Well, I, we can think that, but um, no, 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 no. Let's, let's start with basics. What did, what did Teilhard de Chardin write about? I love the noosphere too. The new sphere of consciousness, something which connects all conscious beings all over the planet simultaneously without their being aware. That was his model, right? right. I agree. That's true. Okay. So you add <laughs> I mean, to that, you add to that, and most of that's unconscious. It's dreams. It's, you know, people separate dreams from reality, and I have different experiences, so my mileage varies. And Anyway. Now we fast forward the film from Teilhard de Chardin, who was a, a Roman Catholic philosopher in what, the 18th century, I think? No, no, he's 20th century. 20th, okay, okay, I thought he was older than Lamatier was another guy. He's 20th century. I always get the two confused. Anyway, so Teilhard de Chardin's idea is we're connected. 
And this consciousness connection encompasses all conscious life without life really being most of the time aware of it. Now we invent the Internet and communication satellites and these stupid things people hold in their hands at dinner. Four people going to a fine restaurant with very expensive decor and food, and they're all sitting there looking at their hands and not appreciating where they are or who they're with. The world is now connected in an electronic 3D new sphere. As soon as the reality of what's out there and our relationship to it, that they're not aliens, they're family, that ETs are part of the human experience, much, much older and much more galactic than we've been allowed to be for millennia, if not much longer. Once that hits the fan, it will spread at the speed of light around the world and the new sphere will connect with the electronic sphere, with the internet sphere, and there is your revolution, Richard, and it's going to happen no, within... That's, that's too much like us us in this kind of educated Western society kidding ourselves that the way we think is the way the majority of the world thinks. Um, kids on motorcycles in Thailand and in, you know, villages in Africa, they're part of the noosphere, but they're not making these jumps that you're talking about because these are, jump, these are Western world kinds of ways of looking at things. And I think we'll get there, but we're not going to get there that way. Do you know what the highest rated television show up until the 70s or 80s was? All over the world, simultaneously. Go ahead. The Apollo (laughs) 11 landing. And that was before the internet, before social media, before the accessibility in any village in the middle of nowhere including at the polls, with the accessibility of the entire human library of conscious and culture and history in your hand. It's going to happen, and we're going to have fun watching it happen. And as it happens, you and I will have many conversations, and you will look back and you'll say, how could I have been so provincial? (laughs) Richard? Yeah, Yeah, Ron. This, this is yeah. this is another generalist, Richard. This is Ron Gerbron. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. I'm, I'm coming to defense of Mr. Grossinger. Go ahead. Oh, I, yeah, I, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Richard, uh, Richard three. I, um, <laughs> well, we, yeah, we said, um, anyway, uh, I think that uh, using the Apollo landing as a, that was an event, not a meme. So I, I it's comparing. I thought you were going to say something like the Howdy Doody show because that would be you know comparable because it's within our local culture. Now I've got a uh, I've got a piece of cloth picked up at about that time uh, in West Africa that was printed with some colorful things like they like to make shirts out of, and it's a picture of the Apollo capsule landing. So there was an example of yeah they were tied into it. Even in uh, even in Africa, but uh, yeah, I, I think Mr. Rosner is right about the um, impact of those things. The it's it's the real Matrix, not the one in the movie. You know, that's this newest newest sphere, sphere, and it's uh, it's got um, 
graduations and zones and it's you know the overall thing is one homogenous uh item but it's uh, it wouldn't be monochromatic if you saw it as a color it would it would be speckled so um that's uh, and it would I, I, everything that's in the world which is very mixed to say you uh you were very inspirational earlier on i can't get it out of my mind you happen to uh mention uh, QAnon, which I know virtually nothing about, never read any of the listings. I just see the comments and so forth about it. But uh, I happen to be looking at uh, the original picture of the face on Richard's items, and I flashed on the uh, face with buffalo horns, and I said, oh, my God, it's the QAnon shaman on Mars. (laughs) And I I, I can't get that image out of my mind. So these things do all plug into each other. You know, this is uh, it's you've returned it to natural philosophy, which was what it which is what it was called before it started to be called science. And it started to get uh, relegated to all sorts of little categories. I was fascinated by and wrote a whole chapter about um, in an unpublished thing about the comparison between the march on the Capitol or whatever you want to call it, the siege of the Capitol and the Roman Saturnalia. Um, which, as it developed in the Middle Ages, you had um, a character called the Lord Lord of Misrule, who directed right. people to go conduct mischief. And the capital um, corresponds to, you know, it's named after the Temple of Saturn. And the Saturnalia, um, by the old um, Roman calendar, according to at least the posting online, would have fallen on January 6th if the calendar hadn't been rearranged. And, um, you know, the, this is a non sequitur, but just while we're talking about these parallel things across the conspiracy theories and the um, kind of creation of alternative realities and one person's news is another person's fake news who's and back and forth. Um, the, the tower of Babel that Richard mentioned earlier. Hmm. We got about two minutes till the bottom of the hour. Then I want to bring Andrew on because Andrew has something very important, Richard, you're going to resonate with because it gets to the heart of what I've been talking about broken physics and a different set of realities that we can test, we can measure, we can see, and we already have, as you will, as you will note. You just want me to stay up longer on the other side of midnight. Well, are you a snowflake or are you interested in finding out something you do not know? Like, I, I, I also want your response to the, the, the COVID curve, the rise and fall of deaths every seven days. I, I have no response. I, I, I have, it's out of the blue to me. I, what could one say about it? Um, well, the first way I approached it was how about if this being faked? You know, I always look at things from the negative. How can it? How can we test it? How can we decide it's real? And once I realized that if you took all the death data in the world and you dumped it all in one pot. How would you come out with a rhythmic seven-day periodicity if everybody was faking all the stuff? And the answer is you wouldn't. It would be a melange. It would be no periodicity at all. The fact that it's so robust and shows up in country after country with totally different reporting systems, 
political systems, monetary systems, you know, metaphysics, memes, to me is very important because it says to me it's real, could be the most important discovery to come out of the whole COVID-19 thing. My guest this morning is Richard Grossinger. We're going to be adding to the list. Uh, you already heard Ron Gerbron, one of our resident imaging team members, who is a generalist. He knows a lot about a lot of stuff. And Andrew Curry is going to join us. Kintia, you've heard from. Keith Morgan is in the background. He, I think he's going to want to say something about something called the Morgan Curve. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. Last half hour to go. The other side of the day. We shall return. midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour of the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning. It began June 6th. It's now June 7th. My guest this morning is uh, Richard Grossinger, and Ron Gerbron is here. And now I'm going to introduce Andrew Curry. Because, Andrew, I think you had a question uh, about some, some point that Richard made in the last half hour or so. Is that correct? I'm not hearing anyone. This is so weird. It's so weird. There's nothing mechanically wrong with this system. It's got to be, Keith, it's got to be in the software, okay? All right, let me try one more thing here. Okay. Someone talk. Now I can hear you.
You made a comment earlier in the show where you said that if we can't imagine something, then we can't make it come come real. And Richard Grossinger said, well, referring to like something like Capricorn One, it's really not even that important if it is real. Well, there is an Italian sculptor who just sold a sculpture for $18,000 just the other day. And this sculpture doesn't exist. This guy basically says he created a, a sculpture called the Buddha in Contemplation. And it's in Milano in Italy. And he, he, he sort of put out a little square with tape. And he says, right here stands a sculpture, a five by, foot, five by five foot square full of nothing. Now, his name is Salvatore Garot. Okay, and he insists the piece does exist. He says it is made of air and spirit. I want to just read to you very quickly what he says. It is a work that asks you to activate the power of your imagination, a power that anyone has, even those who don't think they have it, just as music, songs, or prayers help us to see what we do not see. So even a title feeling is enough to make us view and perceive an existence. It doesn't matter whether it is visible or not. This form generated by thought is here now, above the white square space, exactly 25 meters in front of the entrance to the gallery, d'Italia, the Piazza della Scala in Milano City, Italy. Now it exists and will remain in space forever. Now, most people would say, oh, this is another example of the whole nfts this idea of these sort of virtual artworks that you that people are paying incredible amounts of money for whether it be videos or some sort of digital artwork but this guy literally is saying he's made a sculpture and he sold it for eighteen thousand dollars so i just thought it was a a little pertinent piece in this conversation even though it's kind of weird wow yeah <laughs> wow. wow richard nice work for you well you know, it's like the old, con- the whole conceptual art thing. Whether art is art, there's there are two forms of art. There's art as art, and there's art as concept. And I think that, um, I mean, my own daughter, as one of her careers, creates interesting conceptual art. But at least there's. Are you talking something- about Miranda? Yeah. Uh, at least there are objects there or there are forms that she that are made in this case what's being created and sold is um it's sort of like a scam of a scam and um it, it's but is it cuz art and appreciation and economics and all this stuff is all perceptual value is what people attribute to it it's not intrinsic well, and, that's and, true. And this has yeah. taken it to the ultimate. It's almost like who who was one of those great um, uh, ruck make, uh, ruck makers, muck rakers, who basically <laughs> turned society, yeah, ruck makers, who turned society inside out to demonstrate the absurdity of so many institutions and norms and you know collective belief systems. Guy has taken it to the ultimate, where he's charging and been paid, I guess, eighteen grand for a a, a cube of nothing air. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he literally has Richard. Now, I mean, it could be some promotional thing, but I think it's sincere. I mean, I don't think they would make. The, I mean, this story made the rounds 
uh, just a few days ago. And, and, you know, it's funny. It's almost like, you know, we've been talking about alternate or a mirrored reality. And it's almost like there's an ebbing now underneath where people are feeling something. Well, you guys talked about this. I want to read you one more thing. Richard, one of your um, listeners, I won't say his last name. His first name is Rodney. Let me read you a small piece. I've been having this feeling over and over and over again that there's an, a distinct clarity coming, not only visually, but in our hearts and in our spirit. And listen to what Rodney says. I believe what's going on is exactly that point. I had this awakening, which I call my 10-day awakening, when I was in quarantine for the third time in a year. I can't explain it, but it's like this haze of deception disappeared. And see the big picture. I see the big picture. I've had this craving for knowledge ever since, and this was in the beginning of January. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this from more and more folks, like people that I know, friends, that there's just this – it's like the outlines are becoming more crisp. It's like the, the blades of grass and, their, and the little beads of water on their dew are showing up even more. I don't oh, know. It's, it's hard to – No, 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 no. You're exact because, Richard, you have a passage in your mm-hmm. COVID-19 piece that really grabbed me. It's only like three sentences long or maybe even less. It says you had a friend that emailed you, and she said she was in quarantine, and she's isolated, and she's sitting there, and she spent 10 minutes watching a fly wash itself. Oh, wow. Yeah, change in perception itself. Yep. Um, Slowing down and appreciating the incredible multidimensionality of what we call reality right right in our own gardens in our backyard in our in our kitchens wherever it's it's the slowing down that has given people pause to think unthinkable thoughts richard we're on the edge of forever <laughs> you're such a dramatic radio host <laughs> you're, you're you're in such a class i well that's the, that's the hat i'm wearing I, tonight you know i, I also hear, I hear the lineage of radio announcers back to World War II or something. Well, of course. Come on. Come on. Build, build on, you're it. A build show, on it. You're a showman. You're a great showman. Okay. I want to introduce so, you to something that's so mind-blowing that I'm still grappling with it. And the only other guy that is resonating with my out-of-the-envelope out weirdness is Andrew, who is, <laughs> who are, is our resident you know, um, artist in addition to Kinthea. He actually has a day job where he does it for – television and Hollywood and all that stuff. And then I asked him to do stuff. Well, he has looked at what I found in Jezero Crater because we have learned so much about the Martian civilizations, plural, because of the current Percy mission to Jezero. And at the bottom of Jezero, at the southern part of this 30-mile-wide crater, I found something that is so mind-boggling it absolutely trips us directly into the heart of what we've been talking about for the last two and a half hours. So, Andrew, take it away. Yeah, well, I'm going to hand it off to you, Richard, and I'll, I'll bring it back on the bottom of the poster. But if we go to the other side of midnight.com, go to the show page banner, click on that, and go to my uh, fast links to my items under Andrew. And so my first item is called Reflections of a Former Self. So, Richard, I'm going to let you explain this piece, and then I'll describe the bottom part with the terrestrial connections. Okay. Well, Perseverance is the NASA new mission, this rover mission to Mars, right, Richard? Mm-hmm. Landed on the 18th of February. Has like 20-plus cameras, I mean incredible cameras, 
And in in companion, there are spacecraft orbiting above Mars, looking down, taking pictures. Two in particular, one Mars Express from the Europeans, put into Mars orbit in 2003. And the other MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, put into NASA, I think, a couple of years later. Uh, but don't hold me to that. Anyway, so we've been looking for every conceivable angle on what the Perseverance mission is finding in this very interesting place called Jezero Crater, which, by the way, is from a Middle European language. It means lake. And they think NASA has been saying that this is an ancient, ancient billions of year old lake. So they're looking ostensibly for microbes buried in the muds and the silts at the bottom of the lake, right? So I'm looking at this and I see suddenly structures all over the southwest and southern portion that are of the size and scale and feel of the stuff at Sidonia. Very ancient, very organized, very intelligent, incredibly eroded and battered by God knows how much erosion time on Mars. All right. And one set of them looks weirdly familiar. And then I realize what it is. The layout of these massive structures, and they're each on this order of miles across, laid out geometrically, just like the stuff at Sidonia in the city. It has two similar size, identical size objects side by side, each around a mile across, separated by a gap in between. And then there's a third one, similar sized, but at an offset, at an angle. And that angle looked really weird. It's like it's, something said to me, I, I, I know this, I know this. This is Remember, I look at patterns. So the, the angle led you on the landscape looking down from orbit in these incredibly detailed satellite images from the Europeans to another set of three smaller objects arrayed in a mirror configuration. And they had the same angle between the two and then the third. And then I thought, oh, my God, because I recognized where I'd seen this. This is the layout of the pyramids at Giza, the two big ones, Kefren and uh, um, uh, Khufu, and the third one, uh, uh, what was it, Uh, um, Mycerinus, okay? Those are the Greek names. And remember, Baval, back in the 80s, came up with this incredible insight that the pyramids lying there at Giza are mirrors of the three belt stars of the constellation of Orion. And so what what I suddenly realized was there's a larger configuration, identical in, in essence, with a little bit of calculation, you'll see why in a moment, to what's at Giza. And then right next door is a much bigger version, which is the mirror image at the scale of the mile size arcologies at Sidonia lying right next to it, pointing at the smaller version. And that's when things got really, really crazy because I'm saying to myself, why would there be this mirror image symmetry, obviously designed, obviously structured? And then I began to work out the, the mathematics because if you, if you take the Baval analogy between the belt stars of Orion and the three major pyramids at Giza for literal truth, that the Egyptians were mirroring what they saw in the sky, they were doing an analog on the ground, 
you can actually calculate the ages of these other similar um, uh, mimicry, similar sim- simulations, because the stars are moving. It's called proper motion. And the one, Mintaka, which is the Mycerinus pyramid at Giza, it moves the fastest. So you can use its motion as a kind of a clock because you can reel it back. You can turn the proper motion into retrograde motion where it used to be, you know, a thousand years ago, 10,000, 100. It turns out that when the configuration of the big mirror image of the belt on Mars at the bottom of Jezero was built according to the proper motion of the third star slash pyramid was 450 to 500,000 years ago, Richard, which is the dating of the monuments at Sidonia. And the smaller version, which is turned correctly around for what we see in the sky when you look at the belt stars in Orion, <clears throat> that's much more recent. That's on the order of 300,000 to 250,000 years ago, which turns out to be the dating of the appearance of the mitochondrial Eve on Earth, genetic studies, and the actual dating of the ground plan of Giza, the architectural plan of whatever was built on that site, long predating the pyramids we see as part of the pattern today. So my, again, model in the hyperdimensional model was something literally reached into this nursery, into this solar system, into the planetary matrix of Mars, if not the rest of, you know, us orbiting the sun, and mirror-reversed our view of the galaxy. So we're seeing everything backwards according to whoever built this massive Orion template in pyramids, arcologies, sitting there right now, photographed by two separate space agencies. Was that enough of an intro, Andrew? Yeah, it's well, yeah, exactly. And what I did is at the bottom of my poster, I added some monuments from Earth. So the Taj Mahal in India, the Pakistan monument in Islamabad, Pakistan, and the Washington monument, one monument in Washington, D.C. And what Richard and I on a, on a conversation sort of off show discussed is all of these major monuments here on Earth literally have these reflection pools. And isn't it strange that Jezero Crater is named after a lake, <laughs> a reflective surface? So in that reflective surface is this mirror image. Now, I, you could see, you know, it's literally so above as below, but it's, it's mirrored. And so there's this, this other dimensional quality that we're talking about. I, I described it like, like, um, like a celestial backwater or, or, or eddy current down a stream. You know, we're kind of rotating in the wrong direction and we're sort of put in between a few pebbles or rocks on the side and we haven't been able to join that major stream in the right direction for a very, very long time. I, I don't know how else to put it, Richard. I mean, is it, it, that's how it feels to me and it's twisted me all up, Richard G., <laughs> thinking about what this could mean. I mean, are we in literally... In well, house. let me, uh, Richard and, and Andrew and Ron and anybody yeah. else yeah. listening, uh, Ron wants to say something. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it's like we got thrown through the looking glass. And yes. All that we, uh, exactly. The only in the mirror. Or as I have, you know, kind of 
crassly compared it. Remember in the Superman movies, the big thing is the Phantom Zone? Yeah, were same we thing. Were we imprisoned, Richard Grossinger, by technology or war or evil or whatever, metaphysics in a Phantom Zone where the physics is broken? And I'll tell you where I got thinking about this. When Robin died, there was a period where there was communication. Not only was there communication, there were physical objects that appeared in this house. You know, and I can give you a list. And then there was a period when the communication ended. And I've been told by metaphysicists, well, that's normal and all that. And I'm saying, why the hell is it normal? In my physics model, it's only normal because the frequencies became so mismatched that she could no longer communicate with me or this reality. And that goes it harkens so into the idea that something's been done to us collectively, this solar system, as part of huge wars in the past, or the war, and the result was, using this physics, someone has imprisoned consciousness on Earth in a bubble, in a mirror, and we can't communicate with the larger universe because we're not allowed to by design or accident. Well, that's harsh. <laughs> well, well, and it's uh, testable. It's not testable. Yes, it is. It's, it's, you know what the test is? I'm sure it's not going to be the test, but <laughs> go ahead. We simply find the damn libraries. This has all been recorded. Any civilization that would build things on this scale to immortalize this guy's event also left multiple copies, a holographic record, Teodé Chardin's New Sphere version of what happened and who did it and maybe how we can reverse it. It's out there. All we have to do, Alon, is go find it. Presumes that somebody was able to figure out how to fix it. Or understand it to a level of detail that would allow them to catalog exactly what the steps were. And if we just got, you know, if we just got thrown off the boat or thrown through the mirror, mm-hmm. as it were, as a, um, you know, as a um, newest, uh, newspheric entity, I don't know, you know, you know, I'm talking, I'm trying to think of a word for the gestalt, but whatever, uh, then I don't know who would have been left to write the instruction book. You know, there'd be a lot of information, but maybe not that. Maybe that we have to figure out. Or we get enough clues so we can figure it out. In other words, what I see happening, yeah. Richard, is when this physics becomes mainstream, and you know when that's going to happen? When there are Senate and House committees and military witnesses sitting there on live television, broadcast around the world, talking about craft, vehicles that do things that are impossible by any extension of any physics we think we know. And that will force out of the dark, deep state closet of ultra, ultra black ops programs that have been going on for 100 years, the control of gravity, so-called free energy, I hate the term, unlimited biology, the ability to affect consciousness and direct it where you want. In other words, all the things we are keep from doing now With this fulcrum, this public fulcrum on, quote, UFOs, the bastard subject, the taboo thing you're never supposed to mention, which is now headlines in both the Washington Post and the New York Times, 
that's when the rubber meets the road, going back to a metaphor you referenced earlier, and where this physics, this way to control unbelievable realities that are beyond anybody's conception except for a handful of us crazies will come into its own and witnesses will be talking about things that are literally indescribable by any conventional reality, which will force people to imagine the unimaginable. Well, I like the ideas, but it's too technocratic and it also is too colonial. That's your opinion. You know, you're one guy out of seven billion. I'm another guy out of seven billion. I have my approach. You have your approach. Why don't we see what happens? Fine. Fine. (laughs) Andrew, did you want to join in? Yeah. Richard, you made a comment earlier about NASA and their ritual uh, obsession. And I had a thought when we were waiting off air to come on, Ron and I, that it was just a feeling – sort of in my gut, and that is their rituals, their numbers are failing. This magic is not working anymore. Now, I have nothing to prove this. It's just a gut feeling, and maybe it's because we're about to emerge out of the glass darkly or the looking glass. It's, it's, a, it's an odd feeling I get uh, and really way out there, but it just feels like the whole system has literally run out of gas, and it's time for that switch. It's it's a feeling. It's it's more based on you know something inside than any kind of data. But wanted to add that. Why do you say, Richard? My approach is too technocratic. Is it because of our past experience that science and technology has not served humanity? It's actually subjected us to awful evils. It's because it's because it assumes that the whole plot is based on people using a form of machinery to do something. And um, it's a projection of our own um, way over technocratized civilization on the universe. And it's a reduction of the universe to our own kind of story making. It, it sounds, it has the quality of science fiction imagining to it that um, doesn't really touch upon what I think, uh, you know, Jeff Kripal talks about science fiction really being about, which is our actual kind of superpowers that we don't ever use, which brings us back to the point where you and I probably would agree, only we would get there by totally different paths. But so, I think we, I think we do agree, and I'm going to tell you why. Earlier in the conversation, I mentioned the Vedas. And the yuga cycles, you're Mm -hmm. obviously familiar with the yuga cycles, right? Mm -hmm. All right. The yuga cycles in my physics model are the era where through consciousness and mind alone, humans, these bags of whatever that Kinthea referred to, with thought alone could manipulate and translate and experience this realm and all other realms without technology, without, as that great line in Forbidden Planet goes, physical instrumentality as the frequency changes as the physic progresses in this cycle which is synchronized with the procession that connection gets less and less and less and you need more physical instrumentality to do even minimal things and finally you get to the kali yuga which is where we are now and you need 
technology because things like like telepathy and you know para, telekinesis and you know uh, apprehension of time and all that are limited to a very few people and most of the cultural gestalt is oh that's just nonsense it doesn't exist and again goes back to how do you keep them in prison you make them think everything's impossible if this is modulated on a cycle and it's not a grading cycle it's a punctuated equilibrium cycle where one night you go to bed and it's one reality and the next morning you wake up and everything is very different and we're coming up on that juncture then all the weird absolutely outside the box and hysterically insane stuff I talk about could in fact become very palpable and real to almost everybody and that I think is in our future and that could be when the connections are uh, Andrew re-solidify and this prison we're in briefly because it's cyclic remember no one's fixed it why haven't they fixed it maybe something out there doesn't want us to graduate want us to return to the real universe and is keeping us down on the farm and we will find that out when we find the libraries richard yes this this brings to mind from Einstein. oh my god we are from, we are out of time guys, guys. So we're going to have to pick this up when we have Richard back the next time. <laughs> okay, you got time for the quote? Yeah, he sure. Said he responded to a critic by saying, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. Richard, I want to thank you so much for a hell of a good conversation, and I hope you will come back. Okay, well, thank you for... Um, a good conversation too. <laughs> it's so late. It's kind of like you've got two hours on me. It's very sleepy time. But you held up so one night. Anyway, until next week, same time, same bad channel. This is the other side of midnight. And remember, until next week, straight on. Well, third star on the left, and straight on till morning. And we'll see you next time. And keep looking up. Yeah.